Well, it indeed has been a privilege and pleasure to be have been with several of your folks, and of course some other folks as well from uh, different churches that also joined in with us. So it has been a joy to be here with you, and looking forward to sharing with you just on this last uh, topic for uh, our time together today. I actually have listened in on some of your services because I understand that you have been going through a series in Genesis. And so in, uh, in doing that, as, as I was talking with Bill and with Susan about uh, what I might share on Sunday, I wanted to try to be consistent or be connected with what you all are going through. And so I used this specific talk out of my eight, uh, eight talks that I do for marriage retreats that I do or for marriage uh, conferences. Uh, this talk, the, the fifth in, in my series, is called the God's Model to Send Solution Within Our Marital Role Application, a.k.a. Biblical Roles of a Husband and Wife. Um, and we will start specifically in Genesis. Uh, but uh, one of the things I love to do when I uh, speak at different locations is to, is to specifically share a commercial or kind of a video introduction. So, in light of that, if we got the PowerPoint, <coughs> excuse me, up and going, I know that they're working on moving that over. I'm just looking for that opening slide, and I know we're good. Well, while while they're getting that going, I'll continue to look out of the corner of my eye to see when that shows up, but. Um, one of the things that uh, you might want to do is go ahead and turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. We will start in the beginning, um, but we will be jumping to Genesis chapter 2 quickly thereafter. So feel free to turn there. There we go. I'm going to go ahead and start the presenter view. there for a moment but it was still in the other format let's let's do this let's uh, let's go ahead and jump into uh, Genesis chapter 2 um, you you recognize in Genesis chapter 1 that God creates everything right you have an outline in Genesis chapter 1 I know you've gone over that a couple of different times in fact um, and within the context of that one day specifically then is highlighted in Genesis chapter 2. There we go. I think we're there. Yeah, there we go. Hey, give those guys in the back a hand. Thank you. God highlights one specific day, Genesis chapter 2, for the day in which God created man. And we're going to spend a good chunk of time right there and then in Genesis chapter 3. But since we have that... Uh, PowerPoint up. Let me share with you an introduction kind of to help with the context of what we're talking about. Tim Hawkins, one of my favorite clean comedians, um, and his uh, little video, just a short video on study your wife.
go to Starbucks, learn their drink. Like when you go to the drive-thru, learn what they like to drink at Starbucks. It'll blow our mind. It will. Because women are, that's a hard drink. They're very complicated. <laughs> Men are easy at Starbucks. You, know, you ever go to the drive-thru? Can I help you? Yeah, give me a minute. Take coffee, no cream. Uh, honey, what do you want? Okay, here's what I want. Listen, listen, this is what I want. I want a tall, skinny, sugar-free, decaf, soy, vanilla latte, extra hot, whipped cream, double sleeve, no cup. Please tell me you got that, please. I'd like to change my order to a large whiskey, just a large cup of whiskey, because I'm going to drive away and off a cliff. I don't want it to hurt so bad. And a blueberry scone. Oh, ladies, don't you moan at that. How dare you moan at that? It's not fair. Sometimes my wife gets mad at me for behaving wrong in her dreams. That ain't fair. I had a horrible dream last night. You want to hear about it? No, I'm going to tell you anyway. A grizzly bear was chasing me through the woods with his teeth. He was going to eat me. And you did nothing. You just sat there and you didn't do a thing. What was I doing? You were playing poker with a rabbit. That's what you were doing. And that's the thing. You would do something like that. You would play poker with a rabbit. Well, I was being eaten by a bear. Luckily, a giant unicorn came and saved me. With his laser horn. That's how I saved. Not by you. So, uh, I just love the guy. He is, he is awesome. Um, but believe it or not, there is a context in which that connects. It, we'll, we'll find it along the way, but... Because several of you haven't been with us over the weekend, let me share with you kind of a context of some of the things that we've talked about, kind of in a highlight. We talked about God's design in marriage. We talked specifically about a three-strand cord of marriage, that there's three different kinds of love in marriage. We referred to the fact of love of eros, specifically an eros kind of a love, a phileo kind of love. Eros kind of love is sexual, physical, so on. Uh, and a phileo kind of love, we divide it up into different phases of a married life, the first seven years, and then the second seven years, which deals more with a phileo kind of love. And then the third and final stage of a married life, which takes us from 14 through 25 plus years of marriage, and that deals more with an agape kind of love, an understanding, an unconditional kind of love. And so we walk through several different aspects of that to get a context. We identified the fact that it speaks about a male orientation, a female orientation, and a God orientation. And a, and a super glue kind of love is that which includes all three of those aspects. We talked about the fact that men are facts or bottom line oriented in their thinking. We referenced the fact that actually the brain is wired that way. And this is specifically brain imaging of a man's brain as he is thinking and he's going both across both hemispheres as your excuse me within each hemisphere not crosswise see a woman's brain on the other hand is process oriented she integrates all different kinds of thinking because the wiring in her brain is such that she actually cross hemispheres information accessing information in both hemispheres 
of her brain. And so her thinking is more relational, thought development, um, interrelated oriented thinking, which is different from that. I'm going to back up one slide from the male, which is more bottom line conclusion and solution oriented thinking. So we talked about the differences in that kind of went further into that. But for today, what we want to take a look at is the information specifically related to what happened in the garden. So as we take a look then specifically in, uh, in the garden, as we have Adam and Eve uh, pictured there for us, we'll start at Genesis chapter 2, looking at verses, uh, beginning at verses 4. And I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Version, in case you may have a different version there. I don't want to throw you off with that, just let you know. So this is the account. Let's see, I'm just checking to see where I'm at in my slides. Okay. So, so this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had sprung up from... For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's pray. Father God, as we dive into your word this morning, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would give us understanding and insight to both hear your word and to apply your word in our lives and to live it out, we pray especially within the context of marriage. But Lord, whether married or not, may you apply this word into our lives that we might live it out in relationship with others as well, especially in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see that we have Adam and Eve in the garden. We see that there is a context of both of them being there and God breathing the breath of life into Adam and all of the trees and this garden specifically that was provided for them. And, the, and there's a couple of trees that are identified specifically there. But I want to remind you about something. I want to remind you about the context of what all is taking place. Because understanding the reasons for our marital roles is a response specifically to sin. You see, there was a cause, there was a curse, and there was a cure. As we take a look at the cause, the cause of our marital relationship and why it kind of plays out in, in much the way that it does, we're reminded about our humble beginnings. How, the how, the why, the what that happened when God created them as male and female. And as we looked specifically at this passage of two four through nine, we discover some very specific things. There's the passage taking us through verse six and the passage that we just completed, seven through nine. 
Again, the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. I want to remind you of something. I want you to remind you. I want to remind you that we are but dust. Now, there was a sermon that I think a preacher will never soon forget. This particular sermon, and I think the mom also in this scenario will never forget this sermon. You see, on this particular day, the, the sermon, the preacher prayed and said, Dear Lord, the minister began, with his arms extended towards heaven, in a rapturous look, with his upturned face, Without you, we are but dust. He would have continued, but at that very moment, a very obedient daughter who was listening leaned over uh, to a mom and quite audibly in her shrill little four-year-old voice said, Mom, what is butt dust? <laughs> you see, the context of who we are in our most humblest of beginnings is but dust. And recognizing kind of from where we come and from ultimately where we will go, we need to have a humble perspective about ourself. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, he planted the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, God gave man a job. God specifically created a job for man. As we take a look further in Genesis 2, starting at verses 15 and reading through 17, it says... The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded to the man, you must, excuse me, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. One of the important things to recognize here is that God gave man a job. That job happened before the fall. So work in and of itself is not evil. It was already there, even before the fall. The fact that we have jobs to do, the fact that we have work to do, is not the curse. We all have responsibilities. We all have things that we should be taking care of. That's being part of the process. But there are factors that slip in or come into work that then creates aspects of evil within those contexts. And typically that all relates to us and our choice. So recognizing work is not all bad. It was there before the fall. It was always about the choice to follow God and his desires in our life. To follow, or a choice to follow our own desires. This is what brings about a blessing when we follow God's desires or what brings about a curse in our life when we follow our own. 
recognizing that everything was perfect, everything that God created, he created perfect, except there was one thing. That we find in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, which reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and, and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the waters. And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day and he called the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning one day. And God saw it was good. Only one thing was not good. Do you recall what was not good? This, this can be a question and a, a response kind of thing. What, what was not good? What was not good? I think I heard over here. Darkness, no? I heard over here. Yes, that man was alone. Yes, that was the part that was not good. Let's take a look at chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. The Lord said, The Lord said, It is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. You see, God separated the light from the darkness, good. Separated the expanse from the firmament, evening, morning, good. Good, 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 all the way through six days of creation. One thing God said is not good, right there. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all of the birds in the sky, he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then he closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. So the realization in this particular passage is that it was not good for man to be alone, so God was going to form a helpmeet suitable for him. He was alone. That wasn't good. He needed a helper. God met his needs. We spoke the other day about the fact that God gave Adam a job, right? Name everything. Adam's name and all the different creatures, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus, Adam, and, huh, wait a minute, right? That's how God often works. He knows what our needs are. Rather than parting the clouds and going, hey, Adam, we got a problem here. God doesn't do that. God gives us things to do so we recognize our need. Once we recognize our need, we turn to him for the solution. We turn to ourselves for the solution. We're going to fail every time. We look to him. The solution is provided. But it's incredible how God provides the solutions. You see, God made man aware of his need. That's what happened in verse 19 here. 
And then God performs the very first surgery, describes it in great detail, causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He opens up the flesh. He takes out a rib, closes up the flesh, and out of that rib, he forms woman, and he brings the woman to the man. And do you know what man does right away? We talked about this yesterday. Do you remember what he does? What does a man do? Very first thing. He does his job, right? What was his job? Name everything. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Right? And then we read the passage every preacher uses. Right? And for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. In this passage, it says, man and woman, the man and the woman were both naked and felt no shame. Recognize this fact. God took the rib from man's side. Everything that God does, I want you to hear this again, everything that God does, when something's really important, you'll read it in Scripture three times, everything that God does, He does for a specific reason. Even down to where He took the bone. You see, God took a rib from man's side because that's the place for His bride to be by His side and close to His heart and under the protection of his strong arm. God does everything he does for a specific reason. God did not take a bone out of man's head that a woman should lord it over him. God did not take a bone out of man's foot that she should be seen as beneath him or be trod on by him. God did not take a bone out of man's back that she should be constantly behind him, pushing him along. <laughs> no. He took it out of his side because that's a place for his bride. Understand that God does all these things for specific reasons. So let's take a look then at man's reaction to God's provision. The man then says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they became one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. In truth, as we see in this particular passage, we see that when God provides the answer, God's answers blow your socks off. Man was kind of okay with that because he was actually okay without wearing socks anyway. But the importance, and I'm, I'm tailoring this because I do notice a few younger members in our audience, I, the importance that God provides the purpose in provision was for them to have socks. In fact there was absolutely no shame in them having their socks exposed. The reality is that they were both naked before one another, and there was no shame. It was beautiful. It was precious. And you know that God was walking amongst them, even in their exposed nakedness? Do you recognize that God knows you intimately. He created you. 
And to you, for, for him, you are as precious as when they hand that little baby. When you get to hold your baby, all in. They don't come out with clothes on, by the way, right? That precious little naked body that you get to carry. That's how God sees each one of us. Because there's no evil in that. It's beautiful. It's the life that God has created. But the problem is we have choice. It's not the fact that we have choice is the problem. It's what we choose to do with our choices that creates the problem. You see, God gave us choice because God wanted to demonstrate his love towards us. God gave us choice because without giving choice, you wouldn't really know what love is. You would just be puppets on a string. God provided you with a choice to choose him or to reject him. That choice allows you to know what real love is. Because you then learn what real love is not. That's what brings us to the curse. Understand that the curse is the break in a relationship and that brings consequences. Let's take a look at the big fall. That takes us to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, starting at verse 1, says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the gardens? Thank you for that laugh. I appreciate that. <laughs> the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you won't certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree looked good for food and a delight to look at. And it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now let's back up because I know often as we read through some of these passages, we miss some of the clues of things that are going on. So God had just finished describing to his children, I'm putting you in this garden. Enjoy every tree out there. Just don't eat from that one. Next chapter, where do we find God's children? Hanging out right there by the tree. Yeah, right? You tell your kids, just don't touch the, sight lo the, the light socket, right? And where do you find them? By the light socket. You know, don't, don't open the drawer that has knives in it. Where are they going to go? To the drawer with the knives in it. it. We should learn. Just don't say those things. <laughs> yeah. But we want to give them a warning, just as God gave us a warning. But, yeah, we want to just check it out. What are you saying we can't have? I think I want to try that. So there they are, right? Here's Eve talking with the serpent right there at the tree. 
Listen to what Satan says. Did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat from any of the tree in the garden? Do you see how he's twisting, how he's manipulating there? Did God say that they, can't, that they could eat from any of the trees in the garden? Did God say that? No. He said you can eat from all of the trees in the garden, just not this one. The woman then takes what she heard, presumably from Adam, because it seems like Adam was the one that got the description. But kind of like telephone, it kind of gets exaggerated a little bit, right? The woman says, no, God said we must not eat it or touch it. Did God say don't touch? No, he said don't eat. But we just got to make this even more enticing. Don't even touch it. I wonder what will happen if I touch it. Or you will die. No, you won't die, Satan says. And God knows, in fact, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be kind of like him, knowing good and evil. See, he's trying to hold back from you. He's got some really cool stuff going on over here. You just don't know because you're dumb and ignorant. You just don't. You eat this fruit, you'll know. The serpent said to the woman, the woman saw, now check this out. The woman gets hit with a trifecta, the trifecta of sin, right? The trifecta is this, the lust of the flesh. She looked at it and saw that it was good for food. Mm. The lust of the eyes, she saw that it was a delight to look at. The boastful pride of life. She saw that it was desirable for making one wise. The trifecta of sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is the tactic that the enemy uses all the time. And here it is, beautifully displayed for us in Genesis chapter 3. Satan has really no new tricks. He's using the same ones, even to this day. So, she took the fruit, didn't die. She ate the fruit. She ran about two miles to her husband to give him a taste of the fruit. Is that what happened? No, that's right. Where was Adam? Right there beside her the whole time. And what did he say? What did he do? He did absolutely nothing. He said absolutely nothing. Men, if your wife is starting to do something you know is not good, don't pull an atom. Say something. If I'm walking through a garden, perhaps maybe if you're walking through a garden with your intended or with your wife, and a serpent starts to talk to you, her, what are you going to do? Yes, I know if it were me, I am going to run or I am going to pick up a huge rock and smash that snake right in the head. What did Adam do? Nothing. Nothing. There's all kinds of theological debates about when did sin actually enter into this world? Did it enter when Eve ate the fruit? Who did God put in charge of this garden? Man, 
took the fruit and she ate it. And then it says, and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the very next verse tells us, sorry, I'm catching up. (laughs) Then the eyes of both of them, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So what did they do? So they sewed. So they sewed fig leaves together, coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from among the trees of the garden. I'm going to pause there for a moment just because I like to kind of catch it as we go through. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized their nakedness. And they did something. They sewed fig leaves together to cover what? Their nakedness. Right? What exactly did they cover? Like from head to toe, covered themselves with fig leaves. I happen to believe that what they covered was their differences. They noticed, what are those you have? I don't seem to have those. What is that you have? I don't have one of those. I'm different than you. And so they covered their differences. We're still doing that even today. We find all kinds of difficulty in our differences. When we covered all of that, then we had this common language and we felt like we could do everything. And what did God do? The Tower of Babel gave us different languages which helps to divide us. So we can't all be doing the one thing. There's a reality here. In covering our differences, we find things that because they are different, we find ways to see them as wrong. We find ways to see them as bad and shameful. In the beginning, when God created us, it wasn't. But the knowledge of good and evil takes that difference and makes it bad. That's a problem. Recognizing that they sewed these fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. This is what I refer to as the great cover up. They then heard the sound of the Lord God in verse 8 as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You can just almost imagine them over there behind the trees in their leaves, right? About how old are they right about now? We don't actually physically know, but at least two chapters old, right? You ever play hide-and-go-seek with little kids, right? Okay, go hide. Okay. You can't see me, right? Okay, I'm hiding, right? Just like little kids. And God plays the game with them. 
But the Lord God calls out to man, where are you? Did God not know where they were? Of course he knew. He had a reason in doing that. He's still asking that same question today. Where are you? What does he want you to do? Yes, to say, here I am. Choose me. Where are you? Adam says, I, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God's, God's response, just like parent of little kids. And he said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate from the tree. And the, the, the Lord God then plays along and he says to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So we see the cover up. We see the game. We see the shame that they both felt naked and they hid. And now we see the blame. I, I, I grew up in Baker, California, not Bakersfield. You know, I think you all probably know Baker, right? Yeah, you guys are, yeah, right? That's right, the big thermometer. You go from here on the gateway to the Death Valley to Las Vegas, you went through Baker. I was in Baker, California. I have three younger brothers, so four boys. I'm the oldest of four. One day, my dad comes home from working at the phone company because that was the only business out there in Baker at that one time. Comes home, and there's some crayon coloring on the wall. My dad comes to me and says, Tommy, Tommy, did you write on the wall? No, Daddy, it wasn't me. It was Stevie. He goes to Stevie. Stevie, did you write on the wall? Stevie says, no, it wasn't me. It was Dougie. Dougie, did you write on the wall? No, it was Glennie, right? Glennie, like two years of age. Did you color on the wall? Glennie doesn't have anybody else to blame. So he points at the dog. No, it was Ginger. <laughs> That's exactly what's going on here, right? Nobody wants to take the blame. We want to pass the buck. So, so who does Adam blame? Yes. <laughs> Most people will say, Eve. No, listen to what he said, right? He said, the woman you put here, she gave it to me. Who did Adam blame? He blamed God. How often do we blame God for things that we ourselves do? How often do we find fault with, with God when it's part of our problem? He did everything perfect. We're the ones who screwed it up. But we prefer to blame anybody else other than taking responsibility for ourselves. What is this you have done? What is this you have done? It is our responsibility. It is our choice. God gave clear instructions. So because of this, there is a curse.
because of our choice, sin enters into this perfect environment and decays it and destroys it. The specifics of the curse are this, found in Genesis 3, 16. Skipping past the serpent, it's more about the relationships I'm focused on today. And it said, he says to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. Okay. How does that sound like a curse? Because this is a curse, right? I think I get the part, and maybe all the ladies can say a hearty amen, to the fact that when you give birth to children, there is pain. Would, you, would any ladies agree that there is pain in childbirth? By a show of hands, how many ladies agree there is pain in childbirth? Okay, thank you. I appreciate the testimony. It says, I will intensify your pains in childbirth. Fascinating point. Prior to the fall, apparently there was still some pain, but it just wasn't really intense. So do I get a hearty amen to all the ladies who want to thank Eve for the pain that they now have to... Yeah, I figured, yeah. Pains in childbirth. I get it. That's a curse. It's the second part I don't quite understand, right? Your desire will be for your husband. Now, doesn't that sound like a good thing? Your desire, you're going to desire your husband, yet he's going to rule over you. Okay. Well, he is kind of a knucklehead. I get that might be a problem, but I desire him. So how's that a problem? Well, the reality is you need to take a look over at the very next chapter. See, the very next chapter, chapter 4, talks about Cain and Abel. The whole story of what happens between Cain and Abel. You remember the story, likely, Right? Abel offers a sacrifice. He's, he's kind of a, a, a cattle rancher dude, right? He, he offers a blood sacrifice. God is pleased with his sacrifice. Cain, on the other hand, a gardener, and he brings his, his vegetables. And God says, eh, not sufficient. So Cain's all upset, all butt dust hurt. <laughs> And he's moaning out there in the, in the fields. And God comes to him and says in Genesis chapter 4, Why are you downcast? If you do what is right, won't you be received? Won't you, won't you be uplifted? But be careful. Sin is crouching at the door of your heart and it desires, there's the word, same Hebrew word right there. It desires to control you, but you must master it. Now we know what this word means. So we take that same word there from chapter four and bring it over to chapter three. We now understand the curse. You're going to have intense pains in childbirth and you're going to want to control your husband, but he's going to rule over you. Oh, now I see where this is a curse. Now I get it. Recognizing that, I understand that for a woman, she's going to have three effects to this curse. She's going to have severe pain in childbirth. She's going to desire to rule over her husband. However, he's going to rule over her. Three impacts for the choices that she made. Let's take a look at the curse coming to the man. 
Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And he said to the man, because you have listened to your wife, period. We would all love to have a period right there. Do you see a period right there? No, that's because it's not. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree that about which I commanded you not to eat, what was the problem? Not that he listened to his wife, that he listened to his wife over whom? Over God. You must not eat of it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat from the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it for dust you are and to dust you will return. So here's the curse to the man. Six. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat. It will produce hardships and hurts. Your work will be hard. You will live to work and to produce until you work yourself to death because you are going to go right back to the dust. You see, the curse, the curse is three parts to the woman and six parts to the man. Why? Because the man had even more responsibility related to the curse. The man had even more responsibility related to the care, which he failed to do. Because of that, we find the solution, the cure to the curse as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. That takes us to where we're going to go next. And that is Ephesians chapter 5. You see, because the answer to the curse is found all throughout Scripture, but specific in with the bonds of a marriage relationship, it's listed here. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21, because that is the best place to start, which starts by saying what? It's actually up there for you. Submit to one. Let's read this together. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What are we supposed to do in relationship? We are supposed to read this again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We start with mutual submission. But remember, remember this. In a husband-wife relationship, you are not only husband and wife. If you're both believers, you are also brother and sister in Christ, right? So let's take a look specifically at the role of a godly wife. What Ephesians tells us a godly wife should be. Wives, submit to your husbands, your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives must submit to their husbands in everything. Another verse, Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. So the specific response of a godly wife. Just checking with my notes there. Okay, that's it. Thank you. 
The specific role or responsibility of a godly wife is to submit to her husband. And an important qualifier that comes with that as, yes, and I saw it being mouthed, that's correct, as unto the Lord. If your husband is asking you to do something ungodly, do you submit to your husband? No, because the truth is you're supposed to do it as unto the Lord. If your husband is following a godly guidance and example, then you're submitting to your husband as unto the Lord. There's context in that. Your husband asks you, say, says, you know what, honey, we're running really low on cash this week. I thought we should go rob a bank. Well, the Bible says I'm supposed to submit to my husband in everything, so I guess we're going to go rob a bank. You want me to drive or hold the bag? No, that's not what it says. It says submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Now, here's an important key. How do you know whether or not what your husband is saying is what the Lord would be asking you to do? What do you as women need to know? You need to know the word. Because how can you determine if your husband is right if you don't know what the Lord says? Submit to your husband's as unto the Lord. Remember to respect your husband's role as head because that represents Christ's role as head of the church. And we're supposed to do that in everything. Well, shouldn't he submit to me and other things? What was the first verse we read? Submit to one another. Yes, of course. But when we're talking about this, there's a specific reason for this. You see, the word submit in the Greek is actually borrowed from a military term, which literally means to rank under. It speaks of a way in the army or as is organized of various levels of rank and one's obligation to respect those in a higher rank. The idea of submission has nothing to do with someone being smarter, better or more talented. It has everything to do with God's appointed order. Anyone who has served in the armed services knows that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value and ability. The quality of the, the equality of men and women before the Lord, of which Paul wrote about in Galatians 3.28, has not been retracted here, but neither does it mean to the identity or role function. The submission by a wife is meant to be voluntary. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, not women to men, wives to their husbands. There is a wrong interpretation. A wife should submit to her husband as if he were God himself. That is not the case. I will submit to him as long as he does, does what the Lord wants. This sets a limit on submission. To only go so far as she agrees. It's not her agreement. It's what God says. However, anyone submits to others when they agree. It's, it's when there is disagreement that submission is actually tested. 
You see, the right interpretation is as is fitting to the Lord. It defines the motive of the wife's submission. When wives submit to their husbands, it is part of their duty to the Lord because it is an expression of their very submission to the Lord. It honors God's word and his order of authority and is part of the Christian duty in discipleship. If your husband insists that you do something and it's, you know, something that you're going, well, there's kind of a truth to this and I'm really not sure, what should you do? You should submit to your husband. Sarah is a beautiful example of that. Remember her knucklehead husband? Twice said to her, hey, we're going to this town. Um, you're like really an attractive lady. And when they see you, they're going to want you and they're going to kill me. So how about this? You tell them you're my sister. Who is he protecting? Himself. And what does she do? She submits as unto the Lord. Because who is she putting her faith and trust in? The Lord. And who protects her both times? The Lord. A woman should take great care in how she chooses her husband. Better to first look at the man and see if you can respect him. There are certain cases when a wife should submit. When her husband's asked her, um, she, well, actually, I just covered that. So I'm going to go past that, especially because I'm seeing her time. Recognize all of these specific qualifiers brings us then to the role of a godly husband. So we talk specifically for the wives. The wives, their role is to specifically submit as unto the Lord, right? Submit in, in some things. Submit in, ladies, everything. Thank you very much. So let's see what the curse is and what guys have to do to kind of correct some of the issues with the curse. So the specific verse, Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Let's pause there. So submit or love? Wait a minute. How come it seems like I'm getting the raw end of the deal here, your wives are saying? Now, wait a minute. What is this love we're talking about? It says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. So, submit or die. What is it you would choose? I know some ladies would tell me, I'd rather submit. No, no, they would say, I would rather die than submit. Yeah, I don't think you really mean that. There's a truth. The truth is... As husbands, we're to be willing to give up our lives for our wives. And it gives more specific qualifiers to be willing to die for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word and to present her to himself being Christ as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated his own body, but they fed and cared for their, their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul is wonderful in his writings in that he often goes off onto tangents, but he always brings it right back around as he did here. Understand specifically the, the role of the husband. Specifically, the, that role of the husband is he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Submit in everything. Love your wives being willing to die for her. And your job specifically is to make her holy by washing her with the water of the word. Are you making your wife holy? Cleansing her by washing her with the water of the word. Do you know what the word is so you know how to apply it? Remember, ultimately, she's not yours. Ultimately, she is Christ's. Your job is to present her to Christ and let her shine without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. So you better be rubbing vanishing cream all over her every day. No, no. Understand that that's talking about the water of the word, how you're using the word in your married life to apply that in her life so that she can be that unblemished, spotless lamb that you can present back to Christ. Are you taking care of Christ's possession, men, his bride? Like you care for yourself, by the way, because I imagine every one of you guys got up this morning and went to the bathroom. I imagine every one of you guys may have like kind of got yourself presentable to come to church today. And he's saying, look, you care for yourself. Care for her at least that much. As much as you'd care for yourself, do that. And understand that this is your purpose. To find your helpmate to become one with her and become responsible for her. You as men, she has two specific jobs she needs to do. You as men, seven specific jobs you got to do. Why? Because you have a greater responsibility. I don't know. Submit. Or die. Which one sounds like an easier task? Men, you have a huge job. And I think sometimes we forget that. Last part of this passage concludes with, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, because you do, you take care of yourself. And the wife must respect her husband. It's a beautiful additional qualifier when we identify that. That submission comes with another connotation to it, that idea of respect. Understanding he has a great responsibility, so treat him with that respect. It's a great book by Dr. Egrich's called Love and Respect. Talks about this in great detail. If you have questions about it, I would encourage you to go there to take a look. How can I show more love to my wife? How can I show more respect to my husband?
Again, my question to you is this. There was a specific perfect environment that God created for us. We, by our choice, chose to mess that up. In Adam, all have sinned. We all make wrong choices. Because of those wrong choices, we are separated from God in our relationship. In order to be redeemed or to be brought back into relationship with God, it required Christ's sacrifice. Because there is no other way under earth, under heaven, by which men can be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Jesus modeled for us what submission is because He submitted and surrendered His life to Christ in everything. He modeled what it's like to be a perfect bride in the, in the Godhead, in the, Trinity, in the Trinity, he modeled for us what it's like to be a perfect husband as the head of the church. Everything is found in Jesus. As we recognize that, we see what it means to live a godly marriage. We understand the importance of submitting. We understand the importance of loving and what that looks like. My question to you is how you're doing in the job. If you're having difficulties, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that it contains. Thank you for the beautiful message that it gives. Lord, thank you for the perfect life that you have provided for us from the beginning. And the perfect life that you are trying to restore us to through the sacrifice of your son. I pray that if there is someone here today who does not have that relationship, has not resolved that all important question about where they are with your son. I pray that they would decide that today and they would choose to turn their life over to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I pray, Father God, that as we apply this example that we would seek to be better in our relationship with one another, to understand what it means to submit, to understand what it means to love, and to seek to follow your example in all of it. For I ask it in that wonderful, worthy name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and all God's children said, Amen.